0: Welcome to Inspiring End of Life Conversations with Nina Impala. Do you have questions about death? How about events surrounding death? Or perhaps you have questions that need to be answered after death? On this program, we talk frankly and openly about the subject and invite you to share your comments and experiences as well. Now, here is your host, Nina Impala.
1: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations. I have got a lovely guest here with me today that uh, I'm really looking forward to speaking with. I want to tell you a little bit about her. She was uh, born in South Africa and raised in Oxford, in England. Katie Butler came to America as a girl, earned a BA from Westland University, and was a staff reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. A Buddhist, she was lay ordained by the Vietnamese monk and peace activist Thich Nhat Khan. Katie is an award-winning journalist, public speaker, and best-selling author. She has written two groundbreaking books about the end of life and is a thought leader in the national movement for medical reform. Her first book, Knocking on Heaven's Door, The Path to a Better Way of Death, was a national bestseller and named one of the 100 most notable books of 2013 by the New York Times. Her latest book, The Art of Dying Well, teaches us how to have a good death by living a good life, wise and straightforward. In her years as a journalist, she's interviewed Jeff Bridges, Richard Nixon, and Mickey Hart. Her writing has appeared in, New York, in The New Yorker, Mother Jones, The Scientific American Atlantic, Tricycle, and The Psychotherapy Networker. So we are welcoming you to the show, Katie Butler, and I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you, Nina. It's really nice to be here. Fantastic. Well, let me tell you, you know, I've been in hospice myself like 20 years and seen a lot. And a very dear, dear friend and doctor friend of mine said, you've got to read this book. And I could not put it down. I was blown away by what I read. And when I finished it, I contacted you. And you have two books, and we're going to get into both of them today, actually. And Knocking on Heaven's Door talked about your experience when your father had a stroke and was recovering and he had a pacemaker put in. And one day you went to your mom's and she said, please help me get your father's pacemaker turned off. That statement right there is what glued me to the book. I thought, wow, what does that mean?
2: So I would like you to tell us about that. That was one of those moments of one's life that one never forgets, a, a very electrifying moment, and I, my own heart just knocked when she asked me, and then I said yes, and it was like a vow to my family that I would disregard the voices of the society that said we should all want to live forever. And that there's something sinful or immoral about recognizing when a beautiful life has come to its natural end, as and, was the case with my dad. And, and your pa- oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah,
1: your parents were well educated. Yoga, meditation, walking—they were like the, the the couple, you know,
2: that yeah. you see in magazines from yep. what you described me in your book. Yep. They were. And, you know, um, disaster comes to us all and death and decline come to us all. So they were super healthy, walked every day, ate just the way you're told to. And then my dad had this major stroke at 79 and it took him six and a half years after that to die. And during that time, his speech was extremely damaged by the stroke. He was very dependent on my mother, but he did sometimes say these eloquent things, and among them were, I'm, I don't know who I am anymore. Yeah. I'm not going to get better. It would have been better for your mother if I had died of the stroke. She would have weeped the weep of a widow, and then she would have been all right.
1: I remember and, reading that.
2: Yes. And then eventually he also said, I'm living too long because – the first couple years after the stroke, you could argue that he found some other. He was a, a writer and a professor, and he had been working on a book for 20 years, and suddenly that was just impossible. But he yeah. did find some other satisfactions. It wasn't all bad. But after about two years of that, the more severe decline continued vascular dementia, going blind from macular degeneration. He really started to become this collection of diagnoses and collection of meaningless treatments. Yes. And so the pacemaker, which is can be absolutely a fabulous intervention and a good intervention for some people, it wasn't for him because I really think it prolonged the worst years of his life. And perhaps most significantly, there was no discussion at the time that it was put in that we might need an exit plan at some point, that life could become a curse rather than a blessing, and that extending it unnaturally and artificially could be actually a harm, not only to him directly, which I think it was, but also to my mother, who was a 120 hour a week caregiver. Um, there, so there it is. Yeah. And I ended up writing this book, which involved immense amounts of research into the explosion of innovation that followed the second world war, especially around cardiology and cardiac intervention. And it also became this enormous um, profit center for individual doctors, for interventional cardiologists, for the makers of devices like pacemakers who push them like candy on doctors. So, There was this horrible weaving together of profit motive and American fear of even discussing death or the end of life. I think you were saying that it was like a $24 billion cardiac device industry. Industry, worldwide. And it's probably more now. That was when I wrote the book, which was nearly a decade ago now. So. It's, there's nothing wrong with people wanting to sit around at startups and invent new medical devices, but unfortunately, because we have a um, uh, a legislature that is so heavily lobbied by very well, very, very well financed lobbies, yeah, we uh, the public good gets shaped too much for the benefit of these players. And not enough for the benefit of aging people, of patients.
1: I think, too, the important thing is, this was was this your first experience with someone passing
2: away at that time when you were 59 years old? You know, it's kind of amazing, and I'm almost ashamed to say it, but it pretty much was. I okay. had lived in California for mm-hmm. my adult life. My mother had shepherded several friends through death from cancer. She had been, a, you know, one of those people who will drive you to chemo, et cetera. Oh. So she'd seen some upfront, ugly, overly medicated deaths. Mm-hmm. And my dad had nearly died when he was 21 in the South African Army when he in World War II, but he had survived, terrible wounding. So my, par- my grandparents lived in South Africa, and they had died, three of them had died quite peaceful, prompt, well-timed deaths. And so I hadn't really been exposed to what a long decline looks like or what death can look like. Very few of my friends, except in the AIDS crisis. I did lose friends in the AIDS crisis. But um, on the whole, not so much. We've become, you know, we've kind of sequestered it. And in between the invention and Proliferation of nursing homes and assisted living, and this American fear of discussing mortality. Yes, um, there's been this. We were a lot of us have become kind of death virgins, death naive in a <laughs> way that earlier generations weren't because they no. saw it randomly throughout the lifespan.
1: And this is this is this is the reason I have this show. You know, yep. is is because most people, what you just said. Most. I am i don't want to bring in a big generality here, but most people, you know, like the people that they've lost in their life, first person's a grandparent, and then maybe, you know, you take care of your parents. I have some friends that have not experienced anything like that, mm-hmm. you know, any mm-hmm. death. And so there's, and with the pacemaker, one of the things that uh, I was reading in your book was there was another alternative where they could have put something temporary in him. But exactly. nobody nobody knew that. You didn't even, it's like, now I know that. So it, if I ever have anybody in my family, that's going to be a question that I'm going to ask, you know, because your dad's pacemaker led him to live
2: he until he was 89
1: time. years old. But yeah.
2: what kind of life would that have been, correct? Exactly. And it's almost like you need a PhD to figure all this stuff out. And how yeah. are you going to have a PhD in this before... You face this, and so that's a lot of the reason I wrote these two books is at least to give people a map of the landscape, so you know what questions to ask, and yeah. you feel encouraged and empowered to ask those questions, even though the medical system may not really make time for you or even ask you be curious about yeah. what happened: t- Yeah. I and, mean, and, what and, happened to my dad was this, this conglomeration of events, which often happens right. He, He had a hernia. He needed hernia surgery. He -hmm. went to a cardiologist for a cardiac clearance because Mm -hmm. they wanted to make sure he wouldn't die on the table. And the cardiologist discovered this very slow heartbeat, which had not been given him any problems whatsoever. And so simply because the test showed a slow heartbeat, he and my mother were told he couldn't get the surgery he needed unless he put the pacemaker in first. And as you said... They could have hooked him up to an external pacemaker that just was on for the length of time of the surgery, yes. which is relatively minor. We and could have maybe signed a waiver and said, we understand we're undergoing a risk here. We're taking on a risk. Right. And we want you to know we're not going to sue you over this. We understand mm-hmm. there's a risk. But in terms of our family's values, putting in a permanent device for a temporary problem is not a solution.
1: And, and, you know, when a family member, you're in this state, right? You're emotional, you're exhausted, yes. you, you're, you're not thinking clearly, and you have hope. Yeah. And that's something I think is so important, whatever that hope might be. Yeah. And so you're in a really vulnerable place. And I really want people to hear that. But you, yeah. you've got to write stuff down. You've got to ask questions because maybe there is another way, you know. But when you're in that state, like I could just imagine you and your mom going to the hospital together and going, oh, a pacemaker. Oh, yeah. you know, this is going to make him better, and maybe he'll be the man that he used to be.
2: You know? Yeah, actually, personally, yeah. I was ambivalent about it from moment one, but I was at that point still the West Coast daughter. Oh, and true. I hadn't really found my voice and hadn't been as involved as I would later become in trying to support them and and supporting them, not just trying, actually succeeding.
1: And being so, there for them. You are yeah, amazing.
2: but I, I do have a whole section in the second book, uh, which is The Art of Dying Well, where I talk about this whole question of reconfiguring hope. Yes. Because sometimes when we're in a state of emergency, mm-hmm. our thinking narrows down and becomes very black and white. And then the only thing we can think about is, or we can articulate is, how do you keep us alive as long as possible? But in this section of the book, I talk about other hopes that people can have, even if they do have a severe terminal illness. You can hope to leave a good legacy for your children. Yes, You you can make sure that you do have your affairs in order. You can make sure that they understand very clearly what your sense is of what makes your life worth living and what Kinds of medical interventions you'd want to reject if that life worth living was no longer possible. So,
1: so important.
2: Yes, and there's a woman in the book who a lot of people know about. Who um, she was like 89, and she refused uh, chemo and surgery for oh yeah the cancer, cancer patient. Yes, and then she and her her son, whom she'd been somewhat estranged, mm-hmm. they all piled into a camper, and he took her. She'd only been in one state of the union, I think. She grew up in Oklahoma. And uh-huh. they went for a whole year. They went to national parks. She took a balloon ride. You know, she had her nails done. She just had adventures in her remaining time. And she really did maximize her sense of what quality of life and meaningful life meant to her. See, And, um, and I think that's so important to me, too. Shift your gaze. There there are greater things in life than simply living as long as possible. And frankly, a lot of people know that, but doctors unfortunately assume that the major thing that everyone wants is maximum numbers of days, no matter what their quality, no matter what the cost. Mm -hmm. And there are other things that matter a lot to people, like dying at peace spiritually, Having pain well controlled. Yep. Having family around them. Yep. Being able to say those magic words from the hospice movement, which I'm sure you know about thank you. I love you. Love you. Please forgive me. Yes. I forgive you. And 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 goodbye.
1: Yeah. Yes. And, you know, those, one of the things that I always tell people, you know, when they've got a diagnosis that seems really scary is ask them the question, you know, about the severity of it or how fast it's moving, you know. Because if you've got a cancer that is slow growing, you don't have to jump on the chemo bandwagon right away. Maybe you should just kind of let it sit for a minute, talk to spirit—that's my kind of thing—and yeah. and feel the direction you want to go before you jump into everything.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And and in fact, there is such a thing as fast medicine and slow medicine. We are going to uh, talk about that going after to the break. we talk about that. But uh, yeah. We
1: are going to talk, yeah, because we're getting close and I, and that's a really, there's, there's a subject that I really want to touch on. There's a couple things with that. Yeah. And the amount of people that, because I don't want to die in a hospital. I want to die at home. Yeah. And so having the knowledge that I have from this show and for people like you, you know, that you learn the questions yeah. to ask and you learn how to move forward at a pace that doesn't come from emotion. It comes more from. Wisdom. Yes, and life and, and to And one life. of the
2: questions I suggest asking, let me just squeeze it in before the break. Go for it, yeah. Um, know the trajectory of your illness. Your doctor may not be able to tell you how long do you have to live, but they can give you like a stock market chart of what the decline is likely to look at. And signature diseases have signature trajectories. And some of them are like falling off a cliff And others are slow, gentle declines. Others are like staircases. Get them to just sketch a little sketch on basically a napkin, the back of a napkin. Yeah. Um, And it's very helpful.
1: That's great advice. It really is. And when when we get back from break, too, because there is some really great stuff you put in in, uh, The Art of Dying Well about HMOs and different ways to get Really good care, and I was even surprised by that. It was yeah. really a great read. Okay. So um, let's go to break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about all that. We'll be right Thank back.
0: <music> Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Nina offers an alternative to traditional counseling. Sessions are not just 50 minutes, but a full hour. When you go in for a regular counseling session, many times you don't remember everything. Nina's difference is a summary email after each session and or a follow-up phone call if needed up to two weeks after. Nina also provides hospital visit consultations as necessary. Sessions with Nina Ambala are $250. And if you book a three session package, you will get a $100 discount. Let's get you feeling peaceful and happy again. Losing someone we love is one of the most challenging, fearful, and heart-rending experiences we are ever likely to face. In her book, Dearly Departed, Nina Impala shares stories of her experiences as a hospice volunteer for more than 12 years and how those experiences prepared her for the final days of her own parents. Nina emphasizes the importance of being a good listener and living a good life. Dearly Departed by Nina Impala is available in paperback or Kindle edition through Amazon.com or your favorite book retailer. You are listening to Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations. If you have a question for Nina Impala or her guest today, call into our program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to tutoringforthespirit at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Okay, and we are back with Katie Butler and the Art of Dying Well and Knocking on Heaven's Door. So, Katie, you know what we didn't talk about was how did you finally get the pacemaker out? That was like the main thing that you were trying to do, and it I think it was hard.
2: Yeah, so what happened was that my mother and I... Went to the cardiologist. At, well, first, I did research online and discovered that a pacemaker can be painlessly deactivated. You don't, in fact, have to take it out. You just hold kind of like a little radio monitor and it sends a signal and you can slow it down to the point where it is no longer active. Got it. That would not have necessarily made my father die right that instance. He could have survived quite some Mm -hmm. time. He could have died within five days. He could have died within an hour or two. There's actually no way to really know. So we were treated as though we were monstrous. And the doctor later said to me, it would have been like putting a pillow over your father's head. Now, the reality is the cardiology associations understand that this is a problem. And they have put together a consensus statement, which is on the ethics of turning off any kind of cardiac device. And they basically say that according to a Supreme Court ruling from 1989, Mm -hmm. everybody has the right to refuse any medical treatment and to ask for the withdrawal of any medical treatment. But what's written on paper and what actually happens are two different things. So in the end, he continued to decline. He started to fall, which is also a very frequent trajectory down for the very old. Yes. He had what they call the dwindles. Yes. And he uh, eventually the family doctor who had been opposed to the pacemaker from day one arranged a outpatient palliative care. So a team of people like a hospice team came to the house and started to give my mother real practical help with oh. coping with my dad. Later he developed pneumonia. We very consciously decided not to treat the pneumonia, not to go for antibiotics. Yeah. And he was shifted to hospice. He died on an extremely beautiful well- run hospice unit that was actually in the local hospital part you know it was a floor of the local hospital it was lovely um, but even on even when he was in hospice, you know the right hand doesn't always know what the left hand's doing mm-hmm. the hospice physicians and could not get an okay or a medical order to get the pacemaker deactivated so he actually died with the pacemaker still ticking and i i continue to feel resentment and some agony that his death agony the final 5 years 5 days of his life were still being prolonged by a device that he would never have chosen in the first place if he right. had understood yeah. the implications or had the capacity to even make the decision and it yes. went in. So that was the story. I mean, in a way, it was a good ending. It was a peaceful, gentle death, relatively speaking, from pneumonia, which used to be called the old man's friend. But yeah. the feeling of abandonment and disempowerment by medicine really cut deep for both for both my me and my mother.
1: Yeah. And your mom, she she she, she really didn't live that long after from the yeah. stress of it, correct? She got- yeah.
2: She lived another year or so, a little bit more than a year. That's and her you own know, mother would be 92. And so yeah. she, I think the stress of six and a half years of nonstop caregiving it's, took it sure. out of her, damaged her own heart, which is yeah. what she did. Literally damaged the heart. The heart is such a poetic organ. You know, we think with our hearts. We really do. We feel with our hearts. It's I agree
1: hard. with you 100% on that. It
2: right. Really and and I think her heart was also broken and damaged by all no. the caregivers. She just sounded so. like such a neat lady.
1: And, you know, and she was Very a Very do- powerful. Yeah. A doer. She get the yeah, she job was a doer. done. Yeah. And that's just how she, you know, lived her life. And, and it's interesting because I do believe that the way people live a lot of way is the way that they die. Yeah. And, when we listen deep t- to people, whether they have dementia, you'll get a little message, and there's something. Or they will let you know when they want to go. Yeah, there will there be some. Sometimes you, it'll be kind of metaphorical, and other times it'll just come out like your dad said. You know, this yeah, I'm is
2: living too long. Yeah. I'm living too long. I mean, that, yes, and that was another wonderful thing from researching. Mm -hmm. The art of dying well was gathering these stories from people about. I'm sure you know a lot. I have to send you my book. (laughs) You know, but um, uh, I went to a party and all the dead people I love were there. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw a man in a top hat sitting outside on the eve of the nursing home, the ridgeline of of a building. You know, I Mm -hmm. saw the Virgin Mary. Mm. I, I. I need to pack and get ready for a trip. Yes. I need to move to a higher floor of the nursing home. Yes. The, the, all of the messages, the, the you know, who knows? I don't don't know how to interpret it. But the yeah. messages from beyond that come one way or another to people, and in a sense reassure them mm-hmm. of the travel that they're about to go on. I mean. When my dad did die, and he died, as I said, on this hospice unit, mm-hmm. I asked for a volunteer Anglican um, hospice chaplain to give him last rites. Now, he had grown up in a strong Quaker and Episcopalian tradition and Methodist tradition. Uh-huh. But he I hadn't been a churchgoer for 40 years, yeah. but the amount of comfort, and I'm a Buddhist, so even the language of this ritual was not my language, but it was such a comfort to me to yeah. know that I was consciously turning my father over to the benign forces of the universe, that I was in a sense letting go of him as my dad, letting go in a way of my sense of myself as a daughter, and that there was this moving ancient ritual that people had been speaking for hundreds of years, and mm-hmm. that we could put oil on his, you know, on his brow and anoint him, a ritual that goes back thousands, m- millennia. Is that the saying goodbye oh, ritual? Wonderful. What? The saying goodbye ritual? Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 I don't know it as the saying goodbye ritual, but it is the Anglican last rite, you know, oh. it's the, it, I don't know exactly what it's even called, but it's like the Catholic last rite. It's very much, very similar. You know, if we digress for a second,
1: I know sure. you want to talk about slow medicine too, but when you um, were just talking about him and that you didn't treat the pneumonia, right? Yes. So to a, maybe a normal person, it would be, that would sound weird. Yes. But to me, it was allowing his body to die naturally. Yes. So if we go back into time a little bit, and I wanted you to just touch on the research that you did, because a lot of people don't, we don't talk about death, we don't research death, but people like you and me do, because it's it's what we do for work, yeah. but um, if you want to call it that, but how did we used to die before technology came in and the doctors were the gods sure. instead of the one above us, you know? sure.
2: People died randomly throughout the lifespan up to about 1900 and even died naturally in the first couple decades of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. In the Middle Ages, after the Black Death, they started to put out the first self-help books of all time. And one of them was called The Art of Dying. Yes. And it was written by a priest but it described a ritual for comforting a person who was dying on their deathbed. And people tended to know they were dying. Now, then, in a way that we tend not to know now, now we're saying, doc, am I dying? And with all the interventions and the ventilators, right. you yes. might not know. Mm-hmm. Nobody might know. Right. But, but people would say things like, send for the priest. I'm going today or no, don't send for the priest yet. It's going to be another couple days. You know, it's really extraordinary reading some of these stories, but this ritual of, I think they had, I can't remember exactly the number, but I think it was like five temptations to sin that you would face on your deathbed and the ways people could reassure you. And these were things we would now just call emotions like fear, uh, fear of the afterlife, uh, repentance and remorse. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, wanting to cling to the people and things of the world. I mean, not wanting to go. And then also wanting to go faster. People would also plead on their deathbeds when there was much less good pain control. They they would say, I want to go faster. Why is this taking so long? And so that was considered spiritually kind of a no-no. But So, I mean, a lot has changed, but they understood dying as a communal rite of passage that you needed the support of your fellow human beings. You needed their reassurance. And with their reassurance and perhaps reciting some famous old texts, you could die in a state of grace with less fear, more reassurance that you were forgiven, that you were not being punished for sins. And then, so there was all this emphasis on dying as a spiritual ordeal and a physical ordeal and an emotional ordeal. Yeah. And then... As these fantastic improvements happened in medicine, which obviously have had wonderful effects, there was this sort of transfer of superstitious dependence yes. from the world of the spirit to the mechanical and mechanistic and materialistic world of medicine. So mm-hmm. we we started to expect medicine to help us have meaningful deaths. And we probably could not have picked a worse qualified bunch of people to turn that over to because medicine, medical training has become increasingly technological because the devices and the treatments are, many of them, technology. Um, And so you, you have people who might be very good at reading a chart. I mean, I'm talking about squiggles on a cardiology chart or something. Mm -hmm. but they may actually have very limited emotional intelligence and skills with talking. And so that's what I see is this, we've transferred our faith and put on the altar people and systems that were really not designed to help people have good deaths. And And that's why I wrote the books. It's all about how do you regain your power? How do you reclaim your control? How do you start to name what really matters to you? Because on on the absolute deathbed, living an extra five minutes is usually not people's priority. But these things like leaving your family in good shape or feeling that you've been forgiven, that your life was meaningful, that you're going to be remembered in a meaningful way, that your pain is well enough controlled so that you can have these conversations. These are the things that matter to people. And We need to start writing them down. I'm a big believer in writing in journals. You know, write down what you care about. Write down what you're afraid of. Um, Write down, even start a sentence saying, if I wasn't embarrassed by asking this stupid question to my doctor, I would say dot, dot, dot. You know, or if I wasn't afraid or I felt that the time was so limited, I would ask dot, dot, dot. And just start free-forming and writing what comes into your mind. And changing
1: your view, you know. Yep, yep.
2: I liked this other quote from your book: "Life is not
1: is not over just because one stops fighting death." And your yeah. oncology uh, patient, yeah. um, that that's a perfect description of it. Right, okay, You am dying, I mean? but I'm going to yeah. go enjoy the rest of my life before I leave here. To me, it's like going on a trip.
2: Yeah. You know, it's. And, uh, would, you, would you like me to read from this section of the book where I describe this uh, interchange between Amy Berman and her Yes, doctor? I would love that. And I think our audience would, too. Okay, great. So Amy Berman is a nurse and a health policy expert in Manhattan. Okay. And she discovered, took a shower, discovered this patch of roughened skin on her breast and found out that it was inflammatory breast cancer, which is one of the bad breast cancers. And we all know there are many relatively good breast cancers that are very treatable, but this is not a good one. She assumed that she was going to have to have chemo and radiation. And before she started, she went to Philadelphia to meet with the top expert in her cancer. He was a big time academic. But the night before the meeting, she was with her mother walking in the rain in Philadelphia. Her cell phone rang and it was her regular oncologist back home in Brooklyn, telling her that a biopsy result had come back and her cancer had already spread to the bone. And that meant she was stage four, which meant this was a cancer that could be treated and managed, but it could not be cured and it would end eventually in her death. She knew all this.
1: Hmm.
2: So the next morning, you know, she's a health expert, so she was not naive. The next morning, she goes to the oncologist The next morning, Amy told the famous oncologist about her biopsy results. He did not pause. Here's what we're going to do, he said, plowing ahead with his original plan. Six weeks of intense chemotherapy, followed by surgery to remove her breast, then radiation and another round of chemo. The doctor's aggressive Hail Mary treatment plan would expose her to great suffering, and then she would bump along for who knew how long in severely damaged health. And for what? Her cancer couldn't be rooted out. She questioned the assumption that the most harrowing treatment would produce the best possible result. There was no conversation, she told me later. He was an expert in everything except what really mattered to me. I thanked him for his time, and I left. In other words, basically, she fired him. Back at Maimonides in Brooklyn, her original oncologist asked a more welcome question. What do you want to accomplish? You know, so just to break aside for a minute here, listen to the difference of those two approaches. Yes. I get chills just at hearing it. Yes. Okay. This what we're going to do versus what do you want yep. to accomplish? Yes. What matters to you? Mm-hmm. Not what's the matter with you. What matters right. to you? Treating the person, not the disease. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amy said she hoped for the Niagara Falls trajectory to live as well as possible for as long as possible and then to plunge over the waterfalls to death without undue delay. It has now been nine years since Amy stood weeping with her mother in the rain that night. She knows her days are numbered and she accepts it. But she remains on the top side of Niagara Falls. She takes a uh, estrogen suppressing pill, so she has been doing an oral chemotherapy basically for this time. But she has never spent an afternoon in a recliner while a toxic chemotherapy dripped into her veins. She's never been hospitalized or been too weak to drive or needed a home health aid. She has climbed the Great Wall of China, ridden a jet ski to the base of the Statue of Liberty and seen her daughter Stephanie graduate from college and get married. She has made quality of life her priority. And paradoxically, she's outlived many people who opt for more grueling treatments. Most doctors, she says, focus only on length of life. But that is not my only metric. So, obviously, that's the end of the quote from the book. That's beautiful. Yeah. So, obviously, she's had extraordinary luck. You know, not everybody with a stage four cancer who opts for hospice or palliative care as their basic approach is going to survive as long. Although I did know she's died now finally, but I did know a woman who did a lot of palliative care for 23 years and, yes. and stayed alive all that time and See, might not have done as well if she had done a harsh chemo. And I really,
1: I really truly believe here that our minds and our heart and there was a wonderful, um, I'll just say it real quick, On it was on Netflix, it was called Heal. Um,
2: uh-huh. Oh, yeah, a friend of mine saw that,
1: yeah. Well, and it to- talked about the mind-body relationship, you yeah. know, and that's, I mean, if something like that happened to me, Katie, honestly, I, I would come home, think about it, talk to my husband about it, and just, you know, I, I don't know that I jump into everything so quickly anymore. Yeah. Just from yeah. the knowledge that I have from people like yourself and other people. Yeah. So when we're talking about, I skipped. But I do think
2: there's a, I'm going to just say something. Go for I it. Think a fine line mm-hmm. um, between, I also know people who did not treat a treatable breast cancer and just took carrot juice and did eventually die. And I'm not sure that particular woman necessarily would have died if she yeah.
0: had.
2: So I, I don't think it's, for me, it's not an either or. It's like,
1: Intuition, maybe? Using your
2: intuition about your uh, it's, own body? It's really, it's weighing the pros and cons. Mm. It's thinking, what are the pros, the cons, and the alternatives to the treatments that I am being offered? Uh, is there a support group? Are there complementary medicines that mm. I might do? Okay. Or Or do, like, as you said, do I want to choose not to do any conventional medicine and take the risks that will come with that choice? And I think so much depends on the nature of the cancer. For example, there's, True, some, there's some highly different treated. Yeah, you know, there's highly treatable cancers. The cancers are that are pretty much a disaster for everybody, except yeah. for maybe one in hundred thousand. You know, so you need to know so much that we don't necessarily know. And so I again to get back to this empowerment question. You need to also ask your doctor, what is their goal here? Like if they offer you this chemo or this second round or this third or fourth round of chemo, which is where you really hit the law of diminishing returns and people don't benefit at all, frankly. You want to say, what are you trying to do for me here? Yeah. Are you trying to cure me? Are you yeah. trying to give me a good time? You know, uh, or are you just trying to manage this? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you need to know... They may be assuming you have a goal that you may not necessarily have, yeah. Um, and so you need to get clarity on their goals as well as your own. And you almost have to coach some of these doctors to do. you do. Yeah. My mom yeah. had breast
1: cancer. She died from breast cancer, and uh, but she had ascites really bad. or yeah, she was they found it late. but she kept they gave her like three days to live, in and she ended up hanging out for about
2: three years. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. Wow. <laughs> and real. then you see a lot of the opposite. You see a lot of doctors saying three months and it turns out to be three weeks or three days. Mm. You know, one of
1: my friends one time said to me he's a cancer survivor from a stomach cancer. He said, you know, one of the biggest questions is, do you want to live? Mm. Do you want to stay or are you done? You know, and I think that's, of course, the mind body connection. If somebody is, you know, had sad life and they're just like, I'm done, you know, that could be it too. But, you know, I wanted to, I really want to get into the slow medicine thing. I okay. skipped our break on purpose because I'm just having so much fun talking to you. <laughs> okay, great. So, you know, I'm going to read this this um, a summary from the back of your book, just to kind of give everybody an idea. And then sure. I want to talk a little bit more about it. So, slow medicine is a medical philosophy, movement, and practice that advocates giving doctors the time to make a careful diagnosis, to consider the needs and vulnerabilities of the whole patient, and to perform a healing relationship. A reaction against uh, fast medicine, which is hasty, or prescribing test tris, treatments to do more, but maybe not necessarily better. That was your description in the back of your book. Right. And I, slow medicine is a new thing for me. It's something I've just
2: been learning about. Yeah. And it's a philosophy I, of medicine. Okay. It is, it uh, takes its cues from the slow food movement. You know, we all know fast food where you a lot gets thrown at you, right? A lot gets thrown at you very fast Mm in fast food. It's fast food is cheap, unlike fast medicine. But uh, so it's a philosophy of relationship. It was actually founded by cardiologists in Italy. That's where it first kind of cropped up. But it's Mm -hmm. independently cropped up in the U.S. and a number of other places. And the It's mostly been a movement that's been spearheaded by doctors rather than patients, but it's very beneficial, I think, as an approach for patients. There's someone else you might have on sometime, Victoria Sweet, who has written a couple of beautiful books about it. She's a a doctor. Um, But essentially, she argues that medicine would actually be less expensive if we gave doctors more time with their patients and more time to think things through. Yes. And often she found that just by sitting for 45 minutes by a patient's bed and just pondering, she would come up with something. And it could be something as they were having a reaction to a drug that they had been prescribed and then had been forgotten about. And yeah. especially as you age, mm-hmm. a a treatment or a procedure that would be a no-brainer for a very healthy, hearty 20, 30, 40-year-old, yes. actually becomes risky and vulnerable. So you have to understand the interface between the vulnerability of the person mm-hmm. and the risks and strenuousness of the treatment that you are suggesting for them. Okay. So for an obvious thing, if you are young and extremely healthy, you're more likely to survive a a harsh chemo or a Mm -hmm. very severe surgery than the the very same person at 60 or 70. So there are all kinds of problems in medicine that are the result of throwing too many tests and procedures at people. Even the tests often have inherent risks. Yes, A three-day hospital stay can drive a 70-year-old or 80-year-old, 90-year-old, literally round the bend. It can yeah. send them into a spiral of what's called hospital delirium. Yes. They may frankly never really pull out of it and die within a year. You know. So the caution lights go on. The caution lights go on when you're vulnerable, uh-huh. either because of your pre-existing conditions or because of your just plain age. And when those caution lights go on. This idea of wise medicine, thoughtful medicine, minimalism, not overdoing it, really thinking about prevention and getting you to exercise or getting you to reduce your fall risk or just taking up the uh, slippery throw rugs in your house might be better for you than yet another neurology scan. So I hope I'm making it clear what the slow medicine philosophy is. We have a fantasy in modern life. That throwing a maximum numbers of goods and services at people is what produces happiness and quality of life. and this yeah. is across the spectrum. it's not just in medicine and but medicine's one of the places where it's really shown up as a hazard,
1: yeah, it's true. Yeah. you know you talked about it a couple different insurances that kind of interested me because I was actually surprised it was in the book that um just because I learned something new about the difference with some of the insurances and when you're older, you're better off with an HMO, it sounds like, than and more, um, it sounds like, from what I understand, from what you were saying about Kaiser, help me out here. Yes, yes. <laughs> Kaiser, Kaiser, Yeah. W- thought that that was a really great HMO because everything's under one roof and people are going to get a better exactly. quality of
2: care. Exactly. And I don't think you can turn anywhere and just say, okay, one and done, go to sleep, everything's going to be fine. But right. I think the... Non-profit, originally idealistically motivated HMOs like Kaiser okay, um, are a very good bet because as you get older, you, you need a lot of modest tinkering. You need a good personal care physician. You're the person you see the most, your internal medicine person. Yes. And you really need coordination among all your doctors. You want everyone on the same page. You want mm-hmm. them looking at your medical records with a snap instead of having to, you know. And know you, and know you. Act somebody. I mean, it's just crazy. So, but I have a caution because I think there, there's, so there's two kind of programs. There's classical standard Medicare, the original Medicare, in which you go out and pick your own doctors and they may or may not coordinate well with each other. The other one is called Medicare Advantage. And that's where you will have, Kaiser and HMO as one of your options, if you're lucky and you live in a good area. But I want to also caution you, there are kind of phony Medicare Advantage programs that have been put together as a profit maker. A lot of them are in Florida. Florida is really the ground zero of all this, um, over-treatment, frankly. And Uh, So you really want to watch it because some of those programs are not to your benefit at all, and they're more concerned about depriving you of care and making money themselves than they are about having this be a wonderful thing for you.
1: You know, I mean, back in the day when I think about my own mom, when she used to go to the doctor, she had the same doctor forever, forever. He knew her, and, you know, he, he knew everything about our family, and it And our cardiologist was, he's worked on every adult in my family and he's, you know, he's quite older now, but he knows us and he would, we would have really good care no matter what. But what I find now is that people are seeing a lot of different doctors in a lot of different places. I have a family member right now that is very sick and her care has been horrible. Yeah. And she's getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And every time because her you know, because of COVID, they lost their job, so they lost their insurance. So she's just kind of a, a ward, you yeah. know, of the the hospitals and stuff. And it's heartbreaking. And there's so much I want to do to help her. But it's she has to keep going back and she sees a different doctor every time and they've given her wow. like five different diagnoses. And during that time she's just getting sicker and sicker.
2: And, uh, yeah and she might be able to I mean Kaiser does have a program called the Steps program I mean there are ways to access some of these good HMOs even if you are on Medicaid or okay. some other medical some heart, other yeah. program like that you you can sometimes find Something. coordinated care and with a better emphasis on palliative care at least yep. in
1: California and you know in our in our you know just healthcare as we know, you know, in the yeah. United States can be really tricky. And for people to have the kind of information that we're talking about today, it it's to me, it's just vital. Your dad did he he did end up dying in a hospital, right?
2: Well he died on a hospice unit within on a hospice hospital. unit. Okay. Yeah. No, so because, it was about as good as it could be within an institution.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. But you know, one of the other things that I just want to touch on briefly that you had mentioned in your book was the amount of people that if they knew the questions to ask and they had the time, they probably wouldn't get the treatments.
2: Yes. Yes. I mean, I have a whole section on cancer. You do have a whole section you know, on that. And I, thought, and I just want to, I'm sorry, I'm not playing the book, but it is called. No, Arch- do, please do. Oh, because it's, a, it's, it's it's a really useful resource. That's what I wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. But um, by the time you get to the third or fourth round of treatment of a cancer, it's really a wash. You know, you're talking about maybe getting a week extra of life or maybe not even that. Or yes. maybe dying earlier because your body simply can't stand the harshness of the treatments And anymore. look at that information that yeah. you just said. That, that right there. Yes. You know? Yeah. And the really upsetting thing for me, and I just think it's important to have it in the back of your mind, Mm -hmm. is that cancer doctors, unfortunately, basically fund their practices by the chemos that they prescribe because they get a 4.8% markup like a commission on the chemos that they administer. And so there is no, and I've talked to wonderful cancer doctors, and unless they work in an academic institution, there's really no reimbursement model for them. So you have cancer docs out there who want to do palliative care and want to have these long, meaningful conversations about the truth of what's ahead. That would be me. And they basically can't fund their practices. (sighs) Only if they're in, you know, maybe if they're in a joint practice with other doctors who are prescribing a lot of chemo and those doctors essentially... Pool their resources and pay for one guy to do the palliative care. There's, there's really not a funding model for them, no. and we're we're not rewarding people who want to do the right thing because of the reimbursement model, which has been totally shaped by these lobbies, um, yeah. pharmaceutical lobby, medical device lobby. These things have yeah. a lot of power and influence. So. I don't know. I, in the meantime, though, you know, given the world as it is, I, I do think it is possible to become a lot more empowered. Yeah. It's possible to contemplate the meanings of our lives and mm-hmm. of our deaths when they come. Um, and I think the chances of arranging things so that you do get treatments that help you and you do reject treatments that can't help you, and you do help create a path towards dying at home, if that's what you want. Um, yep. And connecting with very meaningful resources, like especially, I would say, palliative care. Palliative yes. care is a fairly new specialty. It and it, it's people take a team approach. They look at the whole person. They look at the whole family. Mm-hmm. They're not always available. There's not enough of them. Um, but it gets you ready you know they, we have to yeah and they can this. sort of help you navigate this yes. very fragmented um system too yes. so i think it's like it's not all bad news you know it's like no, we it's can not. have happy and meaningful lives that doesn't mean our lives are going to have no suffering in them whatsoever no but we we can have extremely meaningful and fruitful lives uh live consciously mm-hmm. and we can also have meaningful um fruitful and hopefully well pain controlled deaths where the people that love us can come away feeling they really did well by us and they can feel confident for how they helped us and we can feel the same thing if we help out a neighbor. I mean, I think that was another big surprise of the book for me was realizing how important community is and whether that's just like you You stick your nose into your elderly neighbor's yard and say, I'm going to the supermarket. Is there anything you want? Exactly. Um, And we that's some Yeah.
1: Katie, I could just keep talking and talking and talking to you. I I wanna I wanna plug your books and you so that people know where to find all this fabulous information. So go ahead and let's do that. We've got a minute.
2: Okay. Well it's the art of dying well and The other one is Knocking on Heaven's Door, The Path to a Better Way of Death, and it's Katie Butler. They're both published by Scribner, which is a major publishing house. They're both very successful, and they are both available on Amazon, and also you can order them through your local bookstore. And a lot of your bookstores are now open again, or they have curbside service, and I really encourage using independent bookstores.
1: I agree. This has been a pleasure, and I thank you so much, Katie, for being on the show. I knew it was going to go so by quickly.
0: <laughs> go by. Yes, so it
1: did. It really did. It really did. It's been my pleasure to meet you. I read, read both your books, and i it's just been really great, and I will be talking to other people about it and uh, just promoting it. So, thank you right. so much for being on the show.
2: Oh, thank you, Nina. It was my you're, pleasure. You're Take welcome. Care. Take good care. Be well. You too.
1: So that wraps up another episode of Inspiring End of Life Conversations. I want to thank everybody for listening. Please share this information with anybody that needs it and uh, take good care. And be the light that you need to be on this planet. We need it right now. All righty. See you next week. Bye-bye.
0: We hope you have found hope in this week's edition of Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations. Please join your host, Nina Impala, for another program next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again soon.